Why do you think you get so much grief for your salary, for what you're paid? Because I make a lot of money. Your new contract is worth $300 million plus. Are you worth it? Is any player worth that kind of salary? I'm not sure. I mean, that's not my job to evaluate or, or appraise players. I love to play baseball. In December of 2007, the same week that he re-signed with the New York Yankees, signing his second 10-year deal in excess of $250 million, Alex Rodriguez sat down for a 60-minutes interview with Katie Kirk. Although the interview was meant to be about the tumultuous process that led to the contract, the main takeaway from it was a single direct question that Kirk posed to Alex. For the record, have you ever used steroids, human growth hormone, or any other performance-enhancing substance? No. Have you ever been tempted to use any of those things? No. It was a simple, clear, direct answer. No. As it would turn out, it was also a lie. The subject came up because that week was the same week that baseball released the Mitchell Report, its investigation into the use and prevalence of steroids within the game. Rodriguez was not named in the report, and his steroid use wouldn't become public until over a year later, but he had already failed a drug test in 2003 when he tested positive for a drug known as primobolin. That test was meant to be anonymous. It was during baseball's round of survey testing meant to figure out what percentage of players were using. But, of course, it didn't stay anonymous. Up until now, we haven't really addressed steroids directly. It's come up, of course, but now we've reached the point where we can't ignore it. Now, not only was Alex being asked direct questions about his steroid use, but it was being used as a dividing line among all players in the league. Were you clean or were you dirty? Even as A-Rod's reputation took hit after hit in the mid-aughts, one thing he could always cling to was that he was clean. Through that Katie Couric interview, Alex had never been linked to steroids, and he was obviously nervous about protecting that reputation. After all, part of that giant contract he had just signed included big bonuses for setting baseball's career home run record, bonuses that hinged on people viewing that record as untainted if he achieved it. But Alex was soon going to be a casualty of baseball's new steroid regime, which was full of harsh punishments and destroyed reputations. I'm John. I'm James. We're the Lefty Specialists. And this is the A-Rod Chronicles. Chapter 6, Steroids and Alex. In order to really get into the subject of A-Rod and steroids, though, we have to take a rather extensive detour into the quote-unquote steroids era and discuss baseball's larger issues with steroids and PEDs. Before we even dive right in, I want to just say we're going to be using the term PEDs, which stands for performance enhancing drugs, but I really hate that term. Uh, it's sort of weirdly Orwellian. It's like not particularly scientific or precise. A lot of drugs that are included in performance enhancing drugs are like nootropics, which have not been proven to enhance performance in any real way. And a lot of drugs that do enhance performance, like caffeine or ibuprofen, are not considered a performance enhancing drugs. So it's a real bullshit term, but it is like the nomenclature of our time. So we're going to be using it. But just know that there's like a little asterisk every time we say PEDs that we do not like that word. And the quote-unquote steroids era in baseball began sometime in the 1990s, depending on who you ask. But whenever people, whether that's fans or the media or anyone, whenever people talk about baseball steroids era, they are really talking about two different but potentially related phenomena. First, the increased use of anabolic steroids among baseball players. And second, the explosion in home run totals that occurred from the mid-90s to the early 2000s in Major League Baseball. But let's start with the first one, the increased use of steroids. Steroids had been around sports for decades by the 1990s. The Olympics had dealt with doping scandals in the 1970s, most notably or infamously in the East German doping scandal. Bodybuilders had been using steroids for some time. Arnold Schwarzenegger admitted to being on them when they were filming Pumping Iron, the documentary that made him famous back in 1977. Steroids are taken uh, eight or nine, ten weeks before a competition. It's not a healthy thing to do, but uh, it, it's been used. 
Did you take them? I took them. Yeah, I took them. Yeah, up until the competition, uh, eight or nine weeks before competition, and uh, it was something that everybody had to do in order to get an equal chance to, uh, you know, to compete. What are you what, seeking when you take steroids? Well, what uh, the effect it should have is that it makes you uh, gain more weight and that you get more muscularity and you get. Uh, it works a little bit also in your mind. You know, it, it lifts you up a little bit and you have more energy to train and so on. There was also Lyle Alzado, Lawrence High School legend, and a former All-Pro defensive end for the Broncos and Browns, who died in 1992 and admitted to taking steroids from 1969 on. He attributed his fatal brain tumor to his abusive steroids, although that's been disputed by experts. Probably the biggest steroid sports scandal before baseball was the Ben Johnson scandal in the 1988 Olympics, when the Canadian sprinter set a world record in the 100-meter dash only to have his medal stripped of him when he tested positive for Stanozolol. There's a great 30 for 30 documentary on that called 979 Asterisk, which delves into the extent of steroid use in track and field at that time, and covers some themes that we're trying to get at in this episode. But baseball, on the other hand, seemed mostly unaffected by these scandals. Throughout the 1990s, it had no drug testing policy. It didn't even really have rules against steroids. The conventional wisdom was that what steroids help you do, which was put on a lot of muscle, wasn't something baseball players would want. Unlike bodybuilders or football players or Olympians, baseball players were not supposed to be muscle-bound behemoths. They were supposed to be thin and flexible and resilient enough to get through the long season. Big muscles would lead to injury or they'd mess up your swing. That perception started to change with the second phenomenon, the home run explosion in the 1990s. To put in perspective how home runs increased in the 90s, and maybe more importantly, how salient the increase in home runs was, let's talk about 50 homer seasons. For decades, hitting 50 home runs in a season was a kind of gold standard for home run hitters. Babe Ruth had emerged as the larger-than-life cultural icon that we know today, at least in part by hitting 54 home runs in 1920, shattering his own single-season record. Nobody had ever even hit 30 home runs in a season before that. Then Ruth outdid himself the next year, getting all the way to 59. He would reach the 50 mark twice more, including his legendary 1927 season when he got to 60, a single-season record that would stand for 34 years. But if 60 home runs seemed unreachable, 50 was an iconic achievement. Between Babe Ruth and the 1990 season, only 10 guys ever reached that mark. Ted Williams never did it. Lou Gehrig never did it. Even the home run king himself, Hank Aaron, never did it. Between 1965, when Willie Mays did it for the second time in his career, and 1989, almost a quarter of a century, the milestone was only reached once by George Foster of the Big Red Machine in 1977. Then, in 1990, Cecil Fielder did it for the Tigers, which was fine. It was supposed to happen every so often. In 1995, Albert Bell did it, which was a little strange because 95 was a strike-shortened 144-game season. Then in 1996, two guys did it, the first time it had been done twice in the same year since Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle enjoyed their famous home run chase in 1961, which, okay, so that was unusual but not totally unprecedented. Except two guys did it again in 97 when McGuire also became the first guy since Babe Ruth to do it in consecutive seasons. McGuire, Langford, and Gant coming up. Estes pitches, and there it goes down the left field line, and this is it, number 50 for Mark McGuire. A booming shot, a liner way up into the seats, down the left field line, and he becomes only the second man in the history of Major League Baseball to have consecutive seasons of 50 or more home runs. The only other one was Babe Ruth, all of which set up the great home run chase of 1998. Going into that year, there was already speculation that McGuire, who had just hit 58 the year before, might challenge Roger Maris's record of 61. Major League Baseball was adding two new teams in 98, and expansion years were always good for home run totals, with a bunch of inexperienced pitching added to the league all at once. Maris set his record in an expansion year, 1961. And going into 1998, the other guy who was seen as a threat to top the record of 61 was Alex Rodriguez's teammate, Ken Griffey Jr. As mentioned back in episodes one and two, Griffey was a consensus best player in baseball, and he was coming off an MVP season when he hit 
56 home runs in 97. It's worth considering how differently we might remember the so-called steroid era if Ken Griffey Jr., who had a close to 100% approval rate among fans, had been the one to set the record. And he did get to 56 again, but that was 10 behind Sammy Sosa, who came out of nowhere to hit 66 home runs, more than anyone ever had in prior seasons. Sosa hit 20 of his homers in the month of June, coming basically out of nowhere to join the chase for 61. He had never hit more than 40 home runs in a season before that year. But even Sosa finished behind McGuire, who ended up with 70 home runs in 1998 and really captured the nation's attention, changing the way home run hitters were seen. Unlike Griffey, whose swing was fluid and graceful, McGuire swung with raw force. He was built like a tight end at 6'5 and 240 pounds. He had thick forearms and giant biceps. Midway through the 98 season, it was reported he was taking, and I'm not going to say this right, androstenedione, or andro, a legal substance that was nonetheless controversial. It had been banned by the Olympics and the NFL for its ability to spike testosterone levels. And it was hard to be surprised by this. McGuire looked like the kind of guy who would take anabolic supplements. It started to seem like maybe working out and putting on a lot of muscle by whatever means necessary was actually a good way to build a power hitter. Still, as of 1998, there wasn't a lot of appetite for looking into how players were getting so big. Steve Wilstein, the reporter who broke the story about McGuire using Andro, was criticized for snooping in McGuire's locker. Even though... It should be said, he didn't really snoop. The Andro bottle was just pretty publicly visible, but he got a reputation as somebody who, like, rifled through Maguire's things. And then, when Sammy Sosa was asked about using supplements, he made a crack about how his only supplements were Flintstones vitamins, and everyone just moved on. Ha ha ha. People loved the home runs, and they didn't ask too many questions. Bye, folks. Bye, Mark Maguire. Ooh. Me, Mac himself. Who'd have thunk it? Do you want to know the terrifying truth? Or do you want to see me suck a few dingers? Dingers! Dingers! Maguire and Sosa both passed 50 homers again in 1999. Actually, they both got to 60 again. There was another 50 homer season in 2000, then four more in 2001, and another two in 2002, including our boy A-Rod. Of the 47 total 50 home run seasons in the whole century and a half history of baseball, 18... Nearly 40% came in the eight seasons between 1995 and 2002. Then, all of a sudden, everyone got sick of home runs. There were probably a bunch of reasons why people turned on dingers, but two stand out. First was Barry Bonds breaking McGuire's record in 2001. That was just too quick. The single-season home run record was sacrosanct. It was supposed to stand for decades. Both Ruth and Maris had held it for more than 30 years each. Then McGuire shattered the record, only to see his fall just three years later? That felt cheap and anticlimactic. And Bonds was not the lovable ambassador for the game that McGuire had been. Bonds was surly with the media, and long had a reputation as a jerk, one at times he seemed to cultivate. Bonds always attributed this perception to racial bias, and he was certainly correct in part. Bonds, who grew up in a wealthy, mostly white suburb while his dad played for the San Francisco Giants, embodied a long-held American stereotype of the successful black man who is not grateful enough to white people for all his success. But there's also a lot of evidence that Bonds was, indeed, an asshole. Whatever the reason, Bonds' 2001 season was kind of a turning point in how fans viewed home runs. Then, in June of 2002, Sports Illustrated ran a cover story about the use of steroids in baseball. The story, called Totally Juiced and written by Tom Berducci, was based primarily on Ken Caminetti's account of his 1996 NL MVP season. This is like the eighth time we've brought up Ken Caminetti on this podcast. Really surprising a number of appearances by this guy. Uh, And he said his awards-winning season was fueled by steroids. This brought the issue of steroids out into the open and was the first in a series of scandals that would rock the sport over the next few years. In 2003, there was a federal raid on Balco, or the Bay Area Laboratory Cooperative, which had ties to many athletes, including some Olympians, as well as Barry Bonds. We love a cooperative. (laughs) Gotta support our worker collectives. In 2005, there were congressional hearings on steroids, famous for this phrase. I'm not here to talk about the past. Like I've said earlier, I'm not going to go into the past and talk about my past. And that was also the first year of official testing in baseball. 
And just a few months after those hearings, Rafael Palmero, who had steadfastly denied ever using performance-enhancing drugs in front of Congress, became one of the first players to test positive for PEDs. Palmero's positive test was also a big deal because it seemed to confirm allegations made earlier that year by Jose Canseco. Uh, do we have to talk about Canseco? I think we do, sadly. You're probably right, but I'll try to go quickly. Jose Canseco was a baseball star in the late 1980s with the Oakland Athletics. He won Rookie of the Year in 1986 and was named MVP in 88. That year, he also became the first guy ever to hit 40 home runs and steal 40 bases in the same season. For a stretch there, he was considered a future Hall of Famer and seemed like the best player in the game. You may remember from episode two that he was at one point the highest paid player in baseball. He was also something of a star off the field. He dated Madonna. He was in the Homer at the Bat Simpsons episode. He set up his own 900 number for fans to call him. And the whole time, everyone kind of knew he was on steroids. Opposing fans chanted it at him. He lost endorsement deals because of it. He barely even tried to hide it. We said earlier that baseball had seemed immune to the steroid craze in the 80s and early 90s. But Canseco was clearly an exception to that. And one of his former teammates was, of course, Mark McGuire. The two sluggers had been known as the Bash Brothers in their early days in Oakland. But as McGuire became America's darling in the late 90s, Canseco's career kind of sputtered. He bounced from team to team, dealt with injuries, and never recaptured the magic of his early years in the late 80s. As the steroid scandal started to break in the early aughts, though, Canseco emerged as a kind of pied piper of PEDs. He told stories about injecting McGuire in the Oakland locker room and preaching the gospel of steroids as he bounced around the league, giving other uh, users advice and access to his suppliers. Canseco wasn't embarrassed about his steroid use. Although he had denied it as a player, in 2005, he wrote a tell-all called Juiced, where he attributed his whole career to performance-enhancing drugs. He claimed they made him stronger, faster, healthier, better at sex, he talked about them like a wonder drug. You say this, I would never have been a major league caliber player without steroids, right? Oh, well, it is a true statement. No from what's about it. How much of your entire career's success do you attribute to the use of steroids? Maybe not accomplish the things I did, the freakish things I did being 6'4", 250, running 4'3", 40s to 40 um hitting 600-foot home runs, who knows? I tried to do everything possible to become the best player in the world. Do I believe steroids and growth hormones helped me achieve that? Yes. Um, were there a lot of other players doing it that had to compete against? Yes. What you're saying, Jose, is that you were a living steroid experiment for your entire career? Yes. That's what I was. As for Jose Canseco, he is unrepentant. Perhaps the most astonishing thing about his book, in the face of widespread medical evidence that the abuse of anabolic steroids causes serious health problems, he still endorses the use of steroids. Listen to what he told us. I don't recommend steroids for everyone, and I don't recommend growth hormones for everyone. But for certain individuals, I truly believe, because I've experimented with it for so many years, that it can make it an average athlete a super athlete. Um, it can make a super athlete uh, incredible, just just legendary. And maybe because he felt so little shame about it, he used his tell-all to name names about other players using drugs. And he named several prominent players, most obviously McGuire, but not just sluggers like him. He accused pitchers like Roger Clemens, a catcher like Pudge Rodriguez, and slick fielding first baseman Rafael Palmeiro. These guys defy the stereotypes about steroid guys, who were generally seen as thick-armed power hitters who couldn't field and had constant injury problems. And so many people were inclined to dismiss Canseco's allegations as the rambling of a disgruntled former star who seemed kind of crazy and desperate to stay relevant. After all, Canseco is not a re reliable narrator. He had a long list of legal problems, including domestic violence. But Palmero's positive test seemed to validate Canseco, who was alleging that steroid use was not limited to a few bad actors, but was common in baseball locker rooms. Now suddenly anyone could be on steroids. 
Within three years, steroids had gone from something that was only whispered about to something that seemed widespread. I do feel a little bad for Palmero, who was the first prominent guy to fail a test for PEDs, and it basically ended his career. He was an above-average hitter for the Orioles that year, and he had just become only the fourth player in baseball history to get 3,000 career hits along with 500 career home runs. The team had even scheduled some kind of Rafael Palmero Appreciation Day that they abruptly canceled when his suspension came out. And he was out of the league within weeks of that failed test, and he never got anywhere close to the Hall of Fame, falling off the ballot after just four years despite having those historic numbers. And it was really one of the first illustrations of the new attitude towards steroids, which was harshly punitive with no tolerance for any slip-ups after decades of baseball basically looking the other way. Yeah, and it's worth saying that Palmero has consistently denied that he intentionally took steroids. He blamed his failed test on a contaminated B12 shot he got from an old friend of the A-Rod Chronicles, actually, his teammate Miguel Tejada. Tejada himself would eventually be connected to PEDs as well, but at the time, Palmero's attempts to defend himself by throwing a teammate under the bus did not go over well. Yeah, and Palmero became an outcast. But if guys like Palmero were tainted, then suddenly fans had a neat and tidy explanation for the surge in home runs. Home runs went up because players were taking steroids and hitting for more power. This made the late 90s surge in home runs unnatural, suspect, even immoral. It was basically a result of cheating. Except here's the thing, and this is important, so really pay attention. Steroids did not cause the home run surge of the late 90s and early 2000s. They really didn't. In-depth work on this subject has been done by Jay Jaffe over at Fangraphs and a guy named Eric Weber, who built a standalone website called steroidsandbaseball.com to dive into the data on this subject. And what these guys generally find is that throughout baseball history, when there has been fluctuation in baseball's home run rate, it almost always comes down to changes in the ball. I mean, there are other factors, obviously, changes in the strike zone, hitting philosophy, ballpark dimensions. But that stuff is always in flux. And in general, baseball's home run rate doesn't change that much year to year, except when a new ball gets introduced, either because MLB switches suppliers or there's some kind of change to the manufacturing process. This is what happened in 1993, and the result was an increase in home run. Check out this SportsCenter segment from early in the 94 season. Balls are definitely carrying. The thing is scary is just watching all the opposite field home runs right now. Players are really bigger and stronger and faster nowadays. It's just like basketball. You know, I think the basketball court is too small for for those 10 big guys out there. This year is a rim-rattling slam dunk for baseball offense. It used to be that the gold standard for home runs per game was back in 61 when Mantle and Maris both chased Babe Ruth. Remember 87? The talk of the juiced ball and a new mark for dingers. Well, holy homer, this year so far is on a record pace. Compare these first two weeks to last year's. The averages are up. Nearly an extra run and a half per game, and slugging is up 38 points. But the baseball's the same, isn't it? Well, Rawlings has moved its ball production out of Haiti to Costa Rica this year. It's got to be the baseballs. They're harder. I know the balls are harder. The funny thing about that segment is that it includes other theories as well. The pitchers are worse. The hitters are bigger. Nobody quite mentions steroids yet, but everyone wants to find the problem in the players themselves. Few people were open to the idea that the problem was structural. Even the players are reluctant to admit it's because of the ball. And of course, the commissioner's office always downplays the impact of these equipment changes. But we can look at balls that are taken from games in play and notice changes in the springiness of the ball. And it's only a change in the ball that can explain the suddenness of a jump in home runs. After all, there's no reason that pitchers would get bad or that hitters would get big all at once. Any baseball fan paying attention in recent years has surely noticed this same thing happening again. In 2019, there were 6,776 home runs. That is over 1,000 more than were ever hit at the height of the steroid era. And while some cynics out there like to claim that guys were on steroids again, that just doesn't make sense given the timing. 2019 saw a 21% jump in home runs from the previous year. Only a change to the ball can change the game that quickly. One of the things we need to keep in mind is that in the 1990s, the 94 strike screwed everything up. The shortened seasons in 1994 and 1995 made the increase in power look like a gradual thing, like the outcome of PEDs slowly making their way through the league. As we saw when we looked at the 50 home run seasons, those happened gradually. One one year, then a few the next, then a few more the next, and so on. And so it seemed like an evolving trend, which would make sense 
if it were the result of more and more guys using steroids. But that's not what really happened. What really happened is that midway through 1993, after changes to the ball, the home run rate shot up all at once. In 1992, there was an average of 1.44 home runs per game. For the five years between 1988 and 1992, that number was about one and a half, never lower than 1.4 and never higher than 1.6. Then in 1993, it was 1.78. In 1994, the first full year with the new ball, it was over two home runs per game, a 43% jump from two years earlier. And that's where it stayed for basically 15 years. There was another brief smaller spike from 1999 to 2001, which partially explains all those 60 homer seasons in that stretch, but the real significant increase in home runs happened earlier, and it happened suddenly. This would have been more visible if the 94 and 95 seasons had been the full 162 games, and we got normal home run totals from those years. In 1994, when the strike cut the season short two-thirds of the way through the year, there were six guys on pace for 50 homers, including Matt Williams, who was on pace for a record-tying 61. Not all of them were likely to have kept that pace, but remember, this was still in an era when only three guys had done it in the previous 30 seasons. How can steroids explain this? Did everyone in baseball all start doing steroids at the same time and start feeling the effects on practically the exact same schedule? Sometimes you'll see a slightly softer version of the home runs were caused by PEDs thesis. People will say that even if the league-wide trend was due to the juiced ball, as well as other external factors, that the guys who benefited the most from those trends, the league leaders, the record breakers, they were all on steroids. But this sort of seems to be at odds with the idea that steroid use was widespread if its effects were limited to a few outliers. And more significantly, this isn't really borne out by the evidence. Most of the guys who have strong links to steroids were fringe players, not stars. And if you look at the guys who led the league and broke the records, yeah, you do see guys like McGuire and Bonds and Canseco who were linked to steroids. But you also see guys like Ken Griffey Jr. and Jim Tome and Frank Thomas who were never linked to PEDs. Frank Thomas was never linked to PEDs, but he'll sell you some supplements late at night if you want. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Thomas was like a big outspoken opponent of like steroids and he was very adamant that like testing should be strict and now he like hawks Nugenex on like late night commercial infomercials which is like a testosterone boosting supplement so like you know I don't know I like Frank Thomas but come on take a stand (laughs) often people will treat someone's presence on the home run leaderboard in that era as proof that they use steroids guys like Jeff Bagwell and Mike Piazza were dogged by this scene for a long time and it kept them from getting into the hall of fame for longer than it should have And in addition to being unfair, but you can hopefully see the circular logic here. We know steroids caused home runs because the home run leaders were all on steroids. And we know they were all on steroids because they led the league in home runs. So what's what's causing what here? I have a related hypothesis uh, that has to do with how these narratives formed. Here I am on baseballreference.com, as I am every day. (laughs) (laughs) And I am noticing a pattern among the guys who immediately benefited by the juice ball in the mid-90s. In 1993, the home run leaderboard read this way. Tied at number one were Barry Bonds and Juan Gonzalez with 46 home runs. Then in third, Ken Griffey Jr. with 45, Frank Thomas at number four with 41, David Justice with 40. That's a lot of black players. Then in 1994, um, Matt Williams and Jeff Bagwell did finish first and third in the home run totals when the season stopped. But the rest of the top seven that year include Ken Griffey Jr., Frank Thomas again, Barry Bonds, Albert Bell, and Fred McGriff. Then in 95, Bell hits 50 in a shortened season along with 50 doubles, and baseball writers basically moved heaven and earth to instead give the MVP to Mo Vaughn, another black player who himself hit 39 that year. With all due respect to the Matt Williamses and the Jeff Bagwells and the Jay Buners, um, you know, the white players who also surged in these years, is it possible that baseball fans and writers were overlooking the accomplishments of an ascendant wave of black sluggers in the mid-90s? Maybe, but the problem is they weren't really overlooking the home runs. Everyone loved dingers. This was the age of chicks dig the long ball and all the promotion of the home run chases. And a lot of the players you just mentioned were pretty popular. Most obviously Ken Griffey Jr., but also Frank Thomas and Mo Vaughn, who both won MVP awards in the 90s. I do think you're touching on something interesting, though, which is that this period in baseball was pretty unique, demographically speaking. 
We talked in chapter two about the wave of Latin American baseball players in the 90s. And at this point, you also hadn't yet had the precipitous decline in black players in baseball that has really characterized the sport for the last few decades. From 1991 to 1997, those were the only years in baseball that both black and Latin American players each constituted over 15% of baseball. And when you combine that with the salary explosion we've talked about in previous chapters, what do you get? You get a labor force that is increasingly diverse, increasingly well-paid, and increasingly powerful. And then, in some kind of magical coincidence, the steroid scandal pops up as a way to sow discord amongst the players. Yeah, and even before then, I think the way certain Black players and Latin American players to some extent also, the way they were viewed was a little preview of how fans and the media like to divide the lovable players from the bad ones. That's not to say that there were no beloved players of color. I mean, Ken Griffey Jr. and Sammy Sosa proved that. But the way guys like Barry Bonds and Gary Sheffield and Albert Bell were viewed was certainly affected by their race. I mean, even Jose Canseco has said the reason he wasn't as favorite as Mark McGuire was because he was Cuban. Yeah, I'm not totally sold on that explanation. I think his uh, long list of legal troubles, including multiple accusations of domestic violence, play a bigger role in why nobody likes Jose Canseco. Just just one man's opinion. And that's to say nothing of his repellent personality. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think what really drives people's beliefs about this stuff, though, uh, is the evidence against three guys, the three guys who hit over 60 home runs, Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, and Sammy Sosa. We really have to bracket Sosa, though, because he gets kind of a raw deal. He, to this day, maintains he never used performance-enhancing drugs, and the only evidence against him is a 2009 New York Times report that he was one of the players who failed a test during the 2003 round of quote-unquote anonymous survey testing. But that list gets wielded very selectively. David Ortiz's name was also on that list. But whenever you say he used steroids, people will rush to defend him saying, oh, that list is unreliable. It has tests that were never validated, yada, yada, yada. But of course, against Sosa, it's like definitive proof. John, I can't believe you would solely David Ortiz's name on this podcast. Yes, right. Of course. We shall never, nobody shall ever say anything critical about David Ortiz, the most saintly man who ever lived. The evidence against Bonds and McGuire, though, is much more solid. McGuire has faced questions about steroid use ever since his use of Andro was known during the 98 season, and Canseco claimed to have used PEDs with McGuire when they were teammates back in Oakland. In 2010, when McGuire came back to baseball as the hitting coach for the Cardinals, he finally admitted his steroid use. At the time, I have to say, I found his confession pretty self-serving, but when I look back on it now, it seems pretty honest to me. He was very conflicted about it. Uh, Even as he admitted using PEDs, he denied that they helped him break the record. He said it was God who gave him the ability of home runs. And he maintained that the steroid use was just about healing from injuries. You can listen to some of his uh, his interview here. You know, back then, back in the day, that was just, that was it. It was readily available. Um, Guys at gyms talked about it. You know, I think it was the, I believe it was the winter of uh, 89 into 90. I was given a you know couple weeks worth, tried it, never thought anything of it, just moved on from it. But as far as using it on a consistent basis, it was the winter of uh, 93 into 94. I took very, very low dosages just because I wanted my body to feel normal. The wear and tear of 162 ball games and the status of where I was at and the pressures that I had to perform and what I had to go through to try to get through all these injuries is a very, very regrettable thing. And I I wish it never came into my life, but we're sitting here talking about it. And I'm so sorry that I have to. And I apologize to everybody in Major League Baseball. I mean, uh, all I want to do is come clean. I've been wanting to come clean ever since 2005. But he was remorseful, and importantly, he admitted to things that he didn't have to admit to. He didn't claim that he used it just once or twice. He acknowledged that he used it consistently during the mid-90s, and he said that he used it during his historic 1998 season. The cognitive dissonance he expresses, to me, is understandable. As McGuire says, he was a home run hitter before he used steroids, and he was a home run hitter after. He had good years on steroids, and he had good years off them. He had bad years on steroids, and he had bad years off them. So to claim that steroids caused him to break the record and that all his numbers are tainting is pretty insulting. If it's that easy, then why didn't anyone else do it? 
On the other hand, Bonds never had a tearful confession like this. His relationship with the media was always more adversarial than that. To this day, he claims he never knowingly took banned substances. But the evidence against him is pretty strong thanks to the investigation into Balco where he was implicated. It's worth spending time on the Balco case because I think it's often misunderstood what exactly that was all about. Even that name, Balco, which stands for Bay Area Laboratory Co-op, sounds very official and scientific. And baseball fans might remember terms like the cream and the clear, the customized drugs Balco made and supplied athletes with. It all makes Balco sound like something out of a science fiction movie, with teams of scientists in long white coats cooking up wonder drugs that turn Steve Rogers into Captain America. But in reality, Balco was a supplements company run by Victor Conte, a community college dropout and longtime huckster and con man. He had a long record of failed businesses built around products with dubious health claims. Balco was no different. Conti was selling a legal supplement called ZMA, and the main reason he sought relationships with famous athletes like Bonds and Marion Jones was so that they would endorse ZMA, and in return, he supplied them with the legal steroids that he claimed were undetectable. But look, if a guy like that sells you drugs that he says have magical abilities to make you hit home runs, you should be very skeptical. The cream and the clear were not exactly the work of evil geniuses. In fact, we don't really know what they were, because nobody has ever uncovered the exact composition of either drug. According to the reporting in Game of Shadows, the book on Balco and Bonds, written by Mark Fenaru Wada and Lance Williams, the clear at least changed ingredients over time as it was designed to be a masking agent, so it depended on the tests being administered. The cream, on the other hand, seems to have been a testosterone-based balm applied to the skin. You can see creams like that late at night advertised to older men worried about losing their virility. Those are the kinds of drugs we're talking about. When you get older, your body produces a lot less testosterone. And that affects everything that makes you feel like a man. And you know she can tell. But before you face a full-on vitality crisis, you find a testosterone-boosting supplement on TV. And you know it's effective because it's in a giant black canister and endorsed by the strongest retired athlete money can buy. Get your balls back. Your soul. And the way the drugs were taken was similarly unscientific. Bonds testified that his trainer, Greg Anderson, told him the cream and the clear were both legal products. That the cream was just a rubbing balm for arthritis and the clear was flaxseed oil. Pretty much everyone dismisses the idea that Bonds didn't know he was taking illegal substances, but his story really isn't that different from what every steroid user says. Jason Giambi also took the cream in the clear, and while he didn't deny knowing they were illegal, he said he didn't know what was in them. McGuire, in his admission, said he didn't know exactly what he was taking. Ken Caminiti, when he confessed to Sports Illustrated, said he just drove down to Mexico and bought something at a random pharmacy. Yeah, I think people had this image of steroid use as like a team of scientists in white coats constructing an athlete from scratch, Ivan Drago style. But that's not in line with reality. In real life, it seems much more akin to supplements culture where some shady character gives you something of unclear origin and claims it has magical effects. To be clear, this is very dangerous. We are not doctors, as we keep saying. We cannot emphasize enough how much we are not doctors. (laughs) And yet we still urge you not to take drugs that are slipped to you by some college dropout working out of a strip mall. And yet that's how steroids in baseball seem to operate. You often hear cynical fans and baseball writers say things like, these professional athletes are so strict about what they put into their bodies. They know exactly what they are taking. But that really doesn't seem to be true. After all, these guys are jocks. They're not amateur chemists. Is it really so hard to believe they'd take some random stuff that a guy at the gym slipped to them? And this leads to a larger point that's pretty important about the dangers of steroids. Anabolic steroids are dangerous. They can cause long-term heart and liver problems, blood clotting issues, and increased risk of certain cancers. Risks associated with andro, HGH, and other PEDs vary but tend to be similar. Obviously, these things should only be done with proper medical supervision. The best argument for banning steroids has nothing to do with their effects on the game, which are dramatically overstated, and everything to do with the potential harm to players. Yeah, I think we've maybe come off as a little overly soft on steroids since we're so against this testing system MLB has set up, but it's not like we think steroids are good for you. And there 
is an argument for setting up some kind of policy to keep drugs out of the game so players don't feel pressured to take harmful substances that might help them in the short term. But it's worth saying clearly that the system baseball has set up does not protect players. Banning substances and then punishing people so severely when they get caught only pushes the use of those substances underground into shadier corners with creepier characters. And at the same time, the league has let all kinds of misinformation propagate about the effects of drugs. So rather than emphasizing the drug's serious health effects and meager improvements to a player's ability, they've done the opposite. Media coverage of the serious long-term health effects were drowned out by salacious talk of shrunken testicles, swollen heads, and back knee. Meanwhile, the league went along with the idea that all the major accomplishments of all of their best players were the result of steroids. Yeah, in effect, baseball was saying to the players, steroids are magical drugs that are, will make you rich, famous, and successful beyond your wildest dreams, but you should also never do them. It probably would have just been better to be honest and say, these drugs won't really help you that much, and they come with some pretty serious health risks. But instead, they let confusion about the drug's effects run rampant. And we should be clear and explicit about the fact that this confusion hurts players, especially marginal players and younger players who are the most desperate for some kind of competitive advantage. It's no coincidence that the vast majority of guys who have been linked to steroids over the years are not stars. None of this makes the players who took PEDs innocent or makes steroids good for the game, but we should have some perspective on what role these drugs actually played. McGuire, in his confession, put it pretty simply. When you work out at gyms, people talk about things like that. It was readily available. Steroids, it seems, were just something that athletes and people who worked out a lot tended to try in the 80s and 90s. And as more baseball guys started to get into muscle bro culture, more of them tried steroids. We'll never really know how prevalent it was, but it seems clear that the reason we have such definitive evidence against McGuire and Bonds is that since they were the record breakers, they faced the most scrutiny. Indeed, one of the agents who worked on the Balco case, Aran White, would later say that the whole investigation started because IRS Special Agent Jeff Nowitzki just didn't like Barry Bonds and wanted to prove he was a cheater, which would explain something that has always kind of irked me about this, which is, why was the IRS investigating a steroid ring in the first place? Like, aren't they supposed to be going after tax cheats? We need more IRS agents to listen to our podcast, John. No, this is you know, you know, this is like Biden's attempt to fund the IRS and add more agents. It's all to like crack down on steroids further somehow. <laughs> so the fact that they were using PDs is well established, but just because they were using steroids doesn't prove that their accomplishments were caused by steroids. In Game of Shadows, the authors include a sample of Barry Bonds' statistics in 1999 to 2004 the years he was supposedly on PEDs, and they compare that to his offensive numbers in his previous 13 seasons. They use these numbers to prove that steroids had an effect, but there are a couple of funny things about this kind of proof. First of all, you could use the same data to prove the effectiveness of ZMA, the legal supplement that Conti gave to Barry Bonds. After all, Bonds started using that in 99 too, so maybe that caused his numbers to spike. But of course, nobody believes that because they only use correlation to prove causation when it's a bad thing. The second funny thing is that Feneru Wada and Williams lump all the years together, looking at his quote-unquote non-steroid years from 1986 to 1998 as a group and his supposed steroid years from 99 to 04 as a group. And this makes the data look way more cut and dry than it really is. The actual year-to-year -year numbers are much noisier. For example, the biggest jump in Bonds' home run rate came from 1989 to 1990, way before anyone alleges he was on PEDs. It is true that he saw another big jump between 1999 and 2001. But remember, those were the years everyone in baseball saw a jump in their home run rate. Which brings us to the most ridiculous thing about this exercise, which is that the authors only look at data for bonds. There's no effort to put his numbers in context. So, for example, they make a big deal about how from 1986 to 1998, the non-steroid years, bonds averaged 32 home runs a season. But in the steroid years from 99 to 04, the numbers jumped all the way to 49 home runs per year. And that does look extreme. It's more than a 50% increase. But it wasn't unique to Barry Bonds. When you zoom out and look across the whole National League, home runs were up by more than 60% in those years. So maybe every hitter in the NL was on even more steroids than Bonds. Or maybe the increases weren't really about PEDs at all. It's so funny to be like, his home run totals jumped so much from 10 years earlier when he was also leading the league in home runs. Yeah, yeah. Bond was always among the league leaders, but as the league started hitting more home runs, he also hit more home runs. So, like, it doesn't prove what you think it proves, but ugh, God, yeah. You might be asking yourself, 
why are we spending so much time on this? But I do think it is important because this is how moral panics always work. The effects of some new thing or some new trend are exaggerated into mythical proportions, often out of ignorance or fear, and then those myths are used to justify a whole slew of new interventions. In this case, it was drug tests, bans, and tarnished legacies. By the time anyone dispels or even questions these myths, a whole apparatus has cropped up to enforce the moral panic, and all these people have incentive to defend the myth. When you think of the steroid era in baseball, you should really think of America's drug war. Steroids are not really a street drug, but at least among pro athletes, the enforcement had all the same properties. Arbitrary rules about what's legal and what's illegal, brutal but inconsistent enforcement, and incredibly punitive penalties that take on a moral quality. That last point is critical. The way people who get caught using the drugs are not just punished, but branded as criminals or cheaters, as somehow impure or unworthy, whose entire careers get invalidated. In real life, this often takes the form of stigmas and even criminalizing addictions. But in sports, it means drawing arbitrary lines between quote-unquote real records and records that are supposedly tainted, between players it is okay to root for and players who are corrupt. When you read books like Game of Shadows or Selena Roberts' biography of A-Rod, it's not that the reporting is bad exactly or wrong. It's that it is done with this clear sense of trying to tear down an idol, to catch someone being impure. It is, in a literal sense, gotcha journalism. It's not really about uncovering the truth about steroids. We still don't know the truth about what was taken, by whom, or when. It is simply about catching someone with just enough evidence to move them from one side of the ledger to the other, from the good player's side to the bad player's side. And nobody shows the arbitrariness of this divide better than Alex Rodriguez. Because at first, Rodriguez was held up as a shining example of the good side of the divide. He was one of the supposedly natural stars of the game. Remember, Alex was an all-around player. He wasn't just a hulked-out, muscle-bound slugger. He was a good fielder, a good base runner. He hit for a high batting average. Guys like that were thought to be above suspicion based on people's perceptions of what steroids did. In early 2005, even noted A-Rod hater Kurt Schilling. Kurt Schilling! praised Rodriguez as a natural phenomenon. Schilling was a vocal critic of steroid users, and in a bunch of wide-ranging comments to the Washington Post, he said, quote, If anything, it makes me appreciate the fact that Alex Rodriguez is more of a genetic freak than we ever thought, Schilling said, because he is truly the only 40-40 guy to ever play the game. I just want to highlight the phrasing genetic freak, which comes up a lot in this example, right? The idea that some abilities are because you are a, quote, genetic freak, like they're just naturally inborn in you and others are impure. They come from drugs you take. Like the idea that you would cultivate a skill nat- like over time, that never plays in a role. It's either genes or it's drugs. That's a very important part of this, this narrative. It's also just a weird thing to say. Like, wh- what? <laughs> um yeah. Yeah, Schilling's a weird guy. He's a, he's. I think, think time has borne that out. <laughs> Sidebar: Do steroids help you steal bases or not? That, that, yeah, <laughs> but again, we'll we'll never know. Like it depends on who you're trying to make an allegation against. Honestly, Canseco said that steroids did help him steal bases, but the fact that Bonds got so big and stopped stealing bases is used as evidence that he was on drugs. But the whole thing just shows that something was clearly amiss if Schilling was praising a Rod. It just shows how he was being wielded as a weapon against the quote-unquote bad players, the unnatural ones, the guys who weren't genetic freaks. Rodriguez wasn't the only guy used this way. Ken Griffey Jr., Derek Jeter, Pedro Martinez, a lot of guys were held up as this sort of natural ideal. Uh, But given A-Rod's unique position in the game as the consensus best player with the record-setting contract and three MVP awards, a chance to set the all-time home run record, that was really important. It was just really crucial that he be a natural player. And as such, he was held up in contrast with Barry Bonds. And it was a role he wasn't always comfortable with. Given this controversy, Alex, who do you think has the real home run record? Barry Bonds at 762 or Hank Aaron at 755? Well, I think Barry Bonds, he has 762. I mean... Um, but he has an asterisk next to his name. Does he? Not yeah. yet. Well... In right. the minds of many, he does. You know, the federal government is going to make up their decision on that. Barry's had a phenomenal career. I've really enjoyed watching him play, but he's innocent to proven guilty. 
For the record, have you ever used steroids, human growth hormone, or any other performance-enhancing substance? No. Have you ever been tempted to use any of those things? No. You never felt like, this guy's doing it, maybe I should look into this too. He's getting better numbers, playing better ball. I've never felt overmatched on the baseball field. I've always been in a very strong, dominant position. And I felt that if I did my, my work, since I've done, since I was uh, you know, a rookie back in Seattle, I didn't have a problem competing at any level. So, uh, no. But then, as time went on, people stopped talking about him that way. In part, that was because Rodriguez's golden boy luster had been gradually fading for years, as we documented in the last two episodes. But it was also because people's idea of who a steroid user was was beginning to change. As we mentioned, once baseball started testing players, and then in 2007, when the Mitchell report came out, a different picture started to emerge. Excuse me, John. Let's use the official name. The Mitchell report was actually called... Report to the Commissioner of Baseball of an independent investigation into the illegal use of steroids and other performance-enhancing substances by players in Major League Baseball. That's not a very pithy title. They should have done a better job titling that. It's too too long and cumbersome. (laughs) But it was led by uh, former Senator George Mitchell, uh, who had helped negotiate the Good Friday Agreement in the 1990s. So everyone just called it the Mitchell Report. And like the Good Friday Agreement, it provided a revisionist view of history. <laughs> if you want to rewrite how something is remembered, uh, get get your man George Mitchell on the case. <laughs> and the report is a weird document. It's 409 pages, and while it purports to be a comprehensive account of the steroid era, it is based on very limited cooperation from teams and players. And even though it says as one of its conclusions that Quote, baseball does not need and cannot afford to engage in a never-ending search for the name of every player who ever used performance-enhancing substances. The most notable thing about the report were the 83 names it did include, most notably Roger Clemens, based mostly on the testimony of two people, Kirk Radomski, a former clubhouse guy, and Brian McNamee, an ex-cop and personal trainer. The 83 names in the report are by no means exhaustive, but they might be representative. And if you add in the players who failed tests in 2005 to 2007, the portrait of who used steroids started to change. It wasn't really big home run hitters on these lists. It was a lot of pitchers, fringe major leaguers, and aging veterans just clinging on for another year or two. Guys like Jim Park, F.P. Santangelo, Brian Roberts, and Paul LaDuca... And rather than getting people to reevaluate the role steroids played, this just made people move more and more players over that line, from the good players over to the bad players. That side of the ledger no longer just had power hitters like Bonds and McGuire, but pitchers like Clemens and Eric Gagne, and fringe players you never even heard of. And so people no longer felt comfortable holding up anyone as an example of someone they were sure was clean. I'm sure this demonization of players would go on to have no consequences. Then in 2008, nobody was going to go out on a limb vouching for A-Rod. Certainly not Madonna dating, wife leaving, ball slapping, pop-up dropping, and playoff choking Alex Rodriguez. Then, of course, just a few weeks before spring training started for the 2009 season, Sports Illustrated broke the story that Alex Rodriguez's name was on the list of the players who had tested positive during the 2003 round of Anonymous survey testing. A-Rod rushed to defend himself in an interview with Peter Gammons just a few days later. In it, he admitted using and followed the general outline of all steroid admissions. When I arrived in Texas in 2001, uh, I felt uh, an enormous amount of pressure. I felt like I had all the weight of, of the world on top of me, and I needed to perform and perform at a high level every day. Um, back then, it was a different culture. Um, it was very loose, uh, I was young, I was stupid, um, I was naive, and, and I wanted to prove to everyone that, you know, I was worth, um, you know, and being one of the greatest players, uh, of, of, of all time. And, uh, I did, I did take a banned substance, and, um, you know, for that, uh, I'm very sorry, 
and deeply regretful. And although it was a culture back then, and uh, and in Major League Baseball overall um, was very I'm just I just feel that um, you know I, I'm just sorry I'm sorry for that time I'm sorry to my fans uh, I'm sorry for my fans in Texas it wasn't until then that I ever thought about substance uh, of any kind um, and since then, I've proved uh, to myself and to everyone that I don't need any of that. So you're saying that the time period was 2001, two, and three? That's pretty accurate, yes. And what, what kind of substances were you taking? Peter, that's the thing. I mean, again, it was such a, a loosey-goosey era that that's, I'm guilty for a lot of things. I'm guilty for being negligent, naive, uh, not asking all the right questions. And uh, uh, to be quite honest, I, I don't know exactly what um, substance I was, I was guilty of using. You never did it as a Yankee, John, just as a loosey-goosey Texas Ranger. <laughs> yeah, things were very loosey-goosey then. Loosey-goosey, he really hits that. And this apology really hit all the same beats that, uh, for instance, Mark McGuire did. It was a different time. Steroids didn't make me who I am. I'm not sure exactly what I took, etc. But for some reason, and I guess this is subjective, it just rang a little hollow. Maybe it was simply that not enough time had passed. McGuire's confession, which was not well received at the time, came after years of speculation about his PED use. But A-Rod's was something of a shock. And it shattered the one thing that seemed unshatterable about Alex Rodriguez. No matter what else anyone could say about him, he was a narcissist, a bad teammate, a choker, a Bush League player, an overpaid asshole. Nobody could deny that he had talent and maybe more talent than anyone who had ever played baseball. But now, that talent seemed potentially fraudulent. The cover of Sports Illustrated that week was A-Rod's face with a blank expression and a Yankee hat with the headline, The Latest and Greatest to Fall. What's funny and in a way kind of tragic about this whole thing is that nobody ever stopped to notice that A-Rod's failed test proved that we were wrong, not just about him, but about steroids. People had been so sure that someone like Rodriguez was not a steroids guy, and then he turned out to have used steroids. And the conclusion most people drew from this was that you couldn't trust basically anyone, that basically every baseball player was potentially on drugs. Even former Golden Boys were not above suspicion. But nobody ever reconsidered the supposed effects that steroids had. Steroids were supposed to turn you into a hulking, big, muscled freak. But A-Rod spent most of his career as a slick-fielding, all-around athlete and a shortstop. Steroids were supposed to be a shortcut for mediocre players to turn themselves into all-stars. But A-Rod had been an elite talent since he was 16 years old. Steroids were for older players trying to extend their primes. But A-Rod's failed test came when he was 27 years old, right in the middle of his prime. Steroids supposedly caused your body to break down, but Adrod had only once in 12 seasons missed more than 25 games. Instead of reconsidering any of these assumptions about steroids, we just cast a wider net on who to blame or who to criticize and who to morally condemn. Once Alex Rodriguez was outed, people seemed content to dismiss all of baseball, to insist that any home run might be tainted and that every player was worthy of suspicion. His test was the final tragic nail in the coffin of the steroids era. We should say clearly that all this cynicism ultimately helps the owners. It might be useful to go back to Jose Canseco. After he wrote his first book, Tony La Russa, who had managed him in Oakland with McGuire, announced that Canseco's allegations against McGuire must be false. I am absolutely certain that Mark has earned his size and strength through hard work and a disciplined lifestyle. Neither of us are interested, really, in the fact that La Russa was wrong, we're interested in the moral judgment that's here. The idea that size and strength is something that athletes can earn. That is the fundamental lie at the root of the steroid panic. The truth is that every baseball player, every athlete, every worker of any type, develops skills through some combination of natural talent, hard work, and circumstance. Trying to assign moral weight to those skills, to tease out how much of your skills are natural and deserved, 
and how much are unnatural and undeserved is simply a way for management to punish workers they don't like. Larissa is famously a piece of shit who plays favorites among his players, and one way management loves to play favorites is to decide whose skills are earned and whose are not. The fact that he liked Maguire more than Canseco made him sure that Mark's home runs were deserved and Jose's were not, and he was sure right up to the moment Mark admitted to using PEDs. And for many in baseball, Alex got to occupy both roles, the moral and the immoral. When the steroid panic was directed at guys like Barry Bonds and Jose Canseco, Alex was the deserving slugger, the natural talent, the genetic freak. But as the panic spread and as the public turned on him, he turned into the cheater, the selfish star looking for an edge. And with that, the last trace of Alex's former good guy image was gone. But out of ashes, a new A-Rod would rise. A humbled Alex, a clutch Alex, a World Series winning Alex. In Chapter 6, we focus on baseball's home run boom and its association with the quote-unquote steroids era, and the predominance of sluggers in these years is fairly staggering. Of the 28 players who have hit at least 500 home runs in Major League Baseball's 120-plus year history, 13 played during the so-called steroids era. Of those 13, three supposedly clean players have made the Hall of Fame, Two have not reached the ballot yet, the Albert Pujols and Miguel Cabrera. Seven have not been voted in due to steroid allegations. Mark McGuire, the star of the 1998 home run chase that we detail in this episode, he fell off the ballot in 2016, years after his vote share peaked at 23.7%. The A-Rod Chronicles is an undrafted production from us, the Lefty Specialists, written, edited, and produced by the Lefty Specialists. You can see more at undrafted.substack.com. Music by Lonnie Ginsberg. Thanks for listening.